Hi, it's Martin here again. It's still the 8th of... No, the 9th. <laughs> the 9th of October 2018. And I'm sitting in Matt's mother's house in... Um, where are we? Ego. Ego, it's called. And um, we're going to go on to part two of Matt's um, journey living and working in an Indigenous community in the 1990s. Over to you, Matt. Where were we? Tell me a bit about what it was like in the classroom and living in an Indigenous community. All right. So let's go to the classroom first. Uh, when you go to those areas, of course, you know, you think you're going to change the world and you hope you're going to change the world, of course, for the better by educating people. So you bring all your knowledge and all your experience to that. And if you're a good teacher, you know, you can teach students quite well and you can teach them English and maths because you teach them all the subjects and play a bit of sport with them because I was very sporty I like that part too and all those different things but the funny thing was the emotional arc as they call it in you know stories and movies and journeys was that I started out thinking I was going to teach them about English but actually they were teaching me all the time and when you say well what were they teaching you well how about another way to live? How about another way to think? How about another way to be? And not all of which, of course, I've taken on because I don't come from being a white fella they call Cardia to being a black fella which they call Yapa. So I didn't turn into a black fella, but I started to learn things that I'd never seen or understood before that you could then, or a person could then, any teacher, then incorporate in their lives. So. What I found with the teaching staff and the approach was over time I certainly softened towards that cause or that way of thinking or their way of being because my belief was, well, when in Rome, do what Romans do. Don't go to Rome and, you know, start preaching, you know, something from another country because it's just you're in their country. So as time went on, I tried to fit more and more into their culture and probably was less stringent about teaching mine, although I did teach every day and we did our maths and we did our English and you would help people as much as you could. Like I had one senior boy come to my class, I've actually had three, and who could not read or write one word. So by the time that boy ends up writing his full name, you know, you could do cartwheels down the main street. The joy and the rewards are unbelievable and they're not going to go to university like maybe would happen in mainstream society, but he could write his own name. So sometimes the smallest things are the greatest rewards. But if you go to a place like that, a little bit like a missionary, and think that you're bringing your culture to them, the biggest advantage is they're bringing their culture to you. So that's the classroom, but I will say two points on that when you get people that go to those areas you you can kind of split them up into two groups you really have the very strong missionary type ethic where you know your way or your culture's way is the right way and they need to learn that to be successful in the world so you become more disciplined and more strong about your culture and sometimes even you know show more of a backlash and um, I can't think of the right word, but negative, neg negative feelings or thoughts towards another culture or the other group of people is 
you're on a whole other planet, you know, not sit back and enjoy it, but at least get into it and enjoy it and see what it brings you because it can open your mind and expand you a hundredfold greater than anything you can in mainstream society. Just to unpack the classroom a bit more, was the classroom school well resourced? Um, what did it actually look like? How many kids were in the class with you? And you said you had a senior boy. Like, what were the year groupings? And... Well, they just sort of went up in groups of it. It's like a community school, so it sort of goes years two, three together, and you maybe four, five together, and six, seven. I had the senior boys and being a male teacher, I'm with the boys and the girls be with the girls because that's how society is. But on the first day there, and this is how their society works, I had three kids in my class on the first day. But by the second day, I had 24 because the word gets around really quickly whether you're an okay person. That doesn't mean I'm okay, but they think you're okay. And then they come to school or they know you're not okay. And then you go from maybe three kids down to two kids. So I had three kids on the first day and I had 24 on the second day. And after the first two weeks, we had to move classrooms because we couldn't fit into our classroom. So we swapped with another class who was quite small, which was a much bigger room. And I stripped the whole thing back and painted it out and tidied it up and put photos on the wall. And that's where I stayed for about the next five years. It was pretty, it was pretty good, but it was only because... I I think I had an equitable approach rather than a... I'm not very dictatorial or demonstrative anyway, but probably because I'm reasonably easy to get along with and appreciate their culture as much as mine, the classroom was indeed full. I went from three kids to 24 overnight, which is pretty good for a community school because most kids often don't go to school because they're disengaged and there's about a million reasons, but... So that's um. So so did. Did the numbers stay that way, for you, and if they didn't, what did you do proactively to keep them, up? Well, they actually got bigger at most times. It just kept growing. It was really good, for quite a few years. But I had this idea in my head. And when kids went away to Camilda in Darwin because they could be subsidised there, they used to get three square meals a day because they were boarders and they used to sleep at night and not run around or muck up, which they had a lot of freedom in their community. And being kids, you know, they'll do those things or go fishing or go hunting or any other thing you can do. Like school in a community is about number 10 or 11 on the list of things you can do on any given day. So to get anyone to school in a community is just a minor miracle in itself and you've got to see it like that. So I took a plan to ship all the senior kids off to Camilda so they got an even better education and better food and better health. So after, I think in about the third year, I got most of them out of the community to go to Camilda. I started with a couple of kids and got a few more and a few more. Then I got senior girls there as well because the boys went and the girls followed. And after about three years, I... I was back down to three kids again (laughs) because most of them were at Camilda. But the funny thing was for all the right reasons and then there was about a change a year after that and then some of them came back and then it just sort of stabilised somewhere in between probably around about 12 or 15. So it went up and down for different reasons and it goes up and down in communities all the time if there's a death 
this sorry business no one might come to school for two weeks or two months. And then other times you'll get visitors coming into town for a footy carnival or other things and suddenly you've got, you know, five or six extra kids. Um, so when the, when you have sor- sorrow business, is that the... Sorry. Question? Sorry, when you have sorry. What about, um, was the community, and you, you alluded to, but didn't use the word, the kinship. You had the, boy, you had the boys' classes and the girls' classes. Were there, and, and we can't talk about women's business per se, and definitely not experienced it, I haven't. Was, was there initi- were there initiation ceremonies? And if there were, did um, young boys miss school and things like oh, that? Oh, yes, there's, 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 you know, men's business and women's business, and there's, you know, rites of passage at different ages for boys and for girls. And when they go on those journeys, they could be out for a few days or a few weeks at a time, or sometimes even months, a bit like sorry business. But when there's sorry business and there's a death in the community, the whole community goes out until that's over. So there's just nobody at school and no one in the community. And as for business, it goes, my son came and lived with me after a couple of years and he stayed for a while. And he actually went through business there together with another boy. And I think he was the only white boy to ever go through traditional business that I know of. There may have been others, but I don't think there ever have been in that community. And the reason I think he went through that was firstly, he came there and he fitted in with the locals too. He spoke the language and heaps better than me. I just had a few words, but he had, he could speak in sentences and understand them. But I think it was out of respect because I had a good relationship with the community already. Then my son came along and fitted in even more than I did. And then when it came time for business, they put him through business and he actually joined the Aboriginal nation by their own law, in their own way that they've been doing for thousands of years. And that was that's intensely private. Yes, I don't even know all the things that he went through. I was privy to some things, which I can't talk about, but it's not much anyway. It's just think of a normal, I don't know, ceremony that anyone would go through and there's different aspects of it. So I certainly wasn't aware of all the things that happened, but I was part of it and supported it and saw those things until he finished that business, which took about probably, I don't know, maybe four to six weeks overall and then till he came back out of that business and out of the bush and living with the elders and they're passing on their information and secrets to him, some of them, and then he came back into society, but he didn't tell me what they were and we didn't speak about that because you're not supposed to. So he didn't betray that gift to him, which is how it works. It's not a thing to go, oh, you know, look what happened to me. I did this, this and this. doesn't work like that. And was Leon changed after that yeah he was he was he was quite different he was more like a young man he was only a young kid anyway he was only about i think about 21 22 at the time but he just became i would have said my term for him then he was a young man and that was probably the ceremony even though i don't fully understand it i understand it in part but white fellas never fully understand anything Indigenous people let you know some things, but they don't let you know everything, which is good because it's their culture and you're not supposed to know everything. But my take on it was he'd become a young man in his own right, which was a really, it was a really beautiful gift. So you can see why schooling's 10th on the list. It's a very busy, active community. 
What sort of non-schooling community engagement did you get involved in? You mentioned sport before. Well, there was music. I played the drums, so I played with the local larger Manu band a couple of times. They let me have a bash on the drums, and I liked to play the didgeridoo and had a friend that came up and played the did, so we used to do a little bit of that for fun. But it was mostly sport, and because I didn't play soccer there, they only played AFL, I joined the larger Manu Swans first and played with them. They, they let me play, so I played with them for a couple of years, and I wasn't too bad. It wasn't great, but not too bad. And then I later on, I joined with one of the young boys I used to teach. But, you know, when I say young boys, he was about 20 then by the time he sort of finished school. So he wasn't, um, you know, he was a man in his own right. And he wanted to form a new team called the Waniaka Bombers, which is still going to this day. So he and I formed that team and they won their first championship only last year, which was some 16 or so years later. But that team's still going today and we used to play together, you know, about 20 years apart. And uh, it was a wonderful experience. And what I didn't realise at the time was each time I played against them, the, you know, the teams can be really rough out there and they're hard and they're tough. Like they can smash you, they can hurt you really bad. But no one ever hurt me on the footy field, not really at all. I got a couple of tackles, but nothing really bad. But when I went into a competition, I think in my last year, <laughs> I got tackled by a couple of blokes from Cal Karinji and they just near broke me in half. They just, because they didn't know me, they didn't respect me. And of course they didn't like me, probably because I was white, you know, so that doesn't really help. So I got smashed and Jesus, it really, really hurt. But what it showed me was all the years I've been playing football there, no one really went out to hurt me, which was you know, the community coming to meet me and I didn't even know it was happening. Wow. And you probably spotted them 20 years too, didn't you? Yeah. Yeah, I played my last game there at about... I went back at 58, I think, and I played I played a final game. I only got one hand pass in and I was probably lucky because had I held on to that ball a few years ago, I'd have probably been smashed and that really would have been a trip to hospital. <laughs> but they, they let me run on the field at 58 years old and have a farewell, which is... Again, you know, it's pretty graceful. It's there's there's a lot of grace. They don't say that and they don't think of it that way, but I understand it that way because you when you get a couple of steps back from things, you can see things in a clearer light. Well, I think we'll wrap up that segment of the the chat with one question. You were there for five years. Yes. Um, why did you leave? Oh, well, I didn't really want to. It was probably the saddest day of my life. I, I hated leaving, but I had a bit of a fallout with the principal at the time. And it's just the nature of those places. They're very small. You know, you're landlocked. You're only mixing with the same 10, 15, 20 people in your school community. And when you're getting on, it's terrific. There's not a nicer place on earth. Everyone's friendly. Everyone helps everyone. You have barbecues and go fishing or swimming or camping or whatever it is that you do or just watching the footy together or playing sport. It's lovely, but if you have a falling out, there's such small communities, it's really hard to then survive there. So I had a falling out with the principal just over a few minor things. It probably wasn't anything too much. I can't even remember what it was really, but... He went off the rails for a little while. He was having some difficulties in his life. And, you know, there's always difficulties in the school. So it takes nothing to really trigger you. 
to have an argument or a disagreement with anyone about anything because every day is tough. But I'll, I'll sort of finish that by saying that's not an excuse, but everyone's doing it tough out there all the time. But to put a balanced perspective on it, I've always thought of going there as like, it's the best and worst of everything that can happen all at the same time. So you can have a day where it's just the most joyous occasion and the most amazing things happen. And in the next thing there can be a sorry where someone's died unexpectedly. And that can be someone from one to about 30 years old. So it's not old people. And then there's no one at school. So it can go from bliss to grief in the blink of an eye. So you've got to be extremely resilient. And I suppose if I was giving any advice to anyone, you need some good support mechanisms and you have to be very careful when you're under pressure, which you always are in those places. Uh, I suppose not to be too reactive. So you would have been one of the longest serving staff members. Oh, yeah, I was at the time, probably apart from the principal at the time. He he was there about a year or two before me, and then I left, and I think he left about a year or, or so later, and he went somewhere else. But the general turnover is about two years in those places because they're so hard, they're so far away, and they're you know the weather's tough on you, uh, the travel's tough on you, the isolation can be tough on you, and if you're there by yourself, you've really got no support mechanism, so... Most people only last a couple of years, even at best. And you doubled that and a bit more. Well, I'll finish with this part of the story. On the very first week I got there and, you know, the frogs were coming up through the toilet (laughs) and everything moved and the dogs in the community were, you know, they'd attack you because you'd smell, I suppose, like a white fella, like a cardi, and they'd go after you. So nowhere was really safe, especially at night and... There was lots of noise and everything that was just an attack on your senses. I rang my partner up at the time because she was back in Sydney and she said she was coming up, you know, like a week or two later. And I just said to her, this was on the Friday night, I'd only been there five days. I said, don't come. It's just too hard. You know, just stay where you are. And and I said, I'll make a decision over the weekend because it was Friday night. And I was making a phone call from a phone box on the corner, which was about 50 metres from my place. The phone booth had been pushed over and was at 45 degrees, no word of a lie. I don't know how it was even still standing up, but probably the steel was bent. So I was at 45 degrees. There were, uh, the, the phone box was, it was probably about 40 degrees outside. There were 30 dogs surrounding me, barking their heads off, waiting to rip me to shreds. I was almost in tears because it was just such a hard week to get through and everything I had never known or ever seen, but I made the end of the week and I told her not to come and I said, I think I said, I'll make a decision, you know, over the weekend because, you know, I might be coming home on Monday, you know, never mind about you you coming all the way up here, I mightn't even last till next week and then I made another 412 weeks straight after that. Wow. Well, I think I'm going to end that right there and then. And then, are you happy to have a part three on this, Matt? Yeah. Yeah, it's going well. All right, then. That, sounds, that sounds good to me. We keep getting longer and longer. That's 20 <laughs> minutes now. <laughs> <laughs>